to Hear the Word of God, the online and broadcast teaching ministry of the Rev. Eric Alexander. Well now, we come to the end of chapter 11, which we have been studying for quite a number of Wednesday evenings, and I want just to put this whole part of Hebrews in its context as we begin this evening. And then I really want to concentrate on the opening appeal of chapter 12 tonight. If you look back with me to the last paragraph of chapter 10 in your Bible, you'll see that there the apostle has been setting before the Hebrew Christians the two possibilities which lie before them. The epistle to the Hebrews is a word of exhortation, as the apostle calls it himself in chapter 13, to Christians who are going through trial and oppression and adversity, who are in the midst of a period of life when they are teetering on the edge, as it were, of falling away, of turning back. And this epistle is really written to them in order to urge them and exhort them and encourage them to go on with God. That's the great appeal of the epistle to the Hebrews. And you will notice at the end of chapter 10, he has set down the two possibilities which lie before them, either of pressing onwards towards glory by faith, verses 32 to 34 of chapter 10. Recall the former days, he says. This is what they had done in former days, and this has been the characteristic of their lives in previous days. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly uh, exposed to abuse and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on the prisoners and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. What characterized your life in these days, he says? Well, it was having the vision. It was having the vision that you were in this world as those who had been redeemed for an eternal inheritance. You were in this world as pilgrims, passing through with your eyes fixed on glory, and you were ready to go on cheerfully accepting the spoiling of your goods, gladly accepting adversity, because your heart was set on glory. Now, he said, this is how you once lived. The other possibility which is open to you now is turning back through fear. Either pressing on through faith to glory or turning back through fear. Verse 35, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. And that throwing away is a real possibility. So he quotes to them in verse 37, from the book of Habakkuk. Yet a little while, and the coming one shall come and shall not tarry, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and keep their souls. So these are the two possibilities that are open before them, pressing on towards glory by faith, or turning back shrinking back through fear, which they are obviously in danger of doing now. And that's why so many of the appeals of the epistle to the Hebrews are not to drift back, not to turn away, not to allow themselves to be drawn away 
from having their eyes fixed on the goal and going on in faith. Now, the great need that they have in the midst of such a situation in verse 36 of chapter 10 is for perseverance or endurance. Do you notice how he underlines that? Verse 36 of chapter 10, you have need of endurance so that you may do the will of God and receive what is promised. This is the kind of persevering faith which will enable them to go on. Now, if you turn over to chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 are taken up with that same theme of the need of perseverance. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus who endured, it's the same word, who persevered through the cross, despising the shame. Verse 3 of chapter 12, consider him who endured. Now, chapter 11 is therefore sandwiched between these two strong appeals for Christian perseverance. And really, the 11th chapter is a series of illustrations from Scripture of instance after instance of how this is precisely what God's people were called to against all the odds in situations that were so utterly against them that they seem almost unparalleled. And yet God calls his people again and again and again in illustration after illustration to persevering faith. Go on, he's saying to them. You can almost see through the whole panorama of Scripture, God is there behind his children saying to them, Go on, now don't go back. Go on, he is saying. And that's exactly what these Hebrew Christians are so desperately needing to hear God say to them. Now, beloved, the reason that Scripture labors this for us is that there are so many occasions in our own lives when that is exactly what we are needing to hear God say to us. We are needing to hear this word about perseverance. And I want us to take this word at the beginning of chapter 12 this evening and listen to the apostles' reasoned plea for perseverance in the light of the exposition of chapter 11. Therefore, he says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, this is their significance, let us persevere in running the race. Christian perseverance is something, as it seems to me, which we have not really taken seriously enough. It is a tremendously fundamental biblical theme. Christian continuance. The word is translated in various ways. Patience is probably the weakest word, and it's the way the authorized version translates it. Perseverance again and again in the RSV, but sometimes endurance in the RSV for the very same word. It's the common New Testament word for continuing, persevering, going on. And in a sense, you could say that it is the ultimate evidence of Christian discipleship. I wonder if you have noticed this. It's certainly so according to our Lord and Paul and John in the New Testament. If you continue, John 8, 31, 
If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. It's that same word. Colossians chapter 1 verse 22. Listen to the Apostle Paul. He is speaking about how we have now been reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. And then goes on in chapter um, 1 verse 22 and says that because he has reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death, he is going to present us holy and blameless and irreproachable before him. Now listen to this in verse 23 of Colossians 1. Provided that you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel which you have heard. And so you find the Apostle John saying in 1 John 2.19, If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. It's the evidence of true discipleship, and it's a very significant thing to see this biblical teaching on perseverance. So you find the Apostle Paul constantly urging people to do this. In Acts 13.43, he persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. 2 Timothy 3.14, continue in the things you have heard of me. Now these two verses at the beginning, or three verses at the beginning of Hebrews 12, are just packed full of teaching on this matter of Christian perseverance. And I want us to look at them in the light of this last part of uh, Hebrews 11. And for the sake of clarity and time also, I want to try to gather the teaching of these verses together under four headings, or five possibly, depending how the time goes. You will know whether I've kept to my hope of time if it's four or five. So there's an exercise for you. First, the need for perseverance I want to say something about. Then the encouragement to persevere that you find in these verses. The preparation for perseverance. The manner in which we are to persevere. And finally, the means by which God teaches us to persevere. Do you notice with me what it says, first of all, about the need, the need for perseverance? Why is this a great emphasis in this particular epistle and indeed in the whole of the New Testament? Well, the need for it derives from the very nature of the Christian life itself. And the word that the New Testament uses for persevere gives us some light on it. In its classical usage, the Greek word for persevere is frequently set against one of two backgrounds. One of them is military, and the other is athletic. And it's very interesting to see this. In its military context, this word for persevere refers to the man who stands his ground right through the battle until it's finished and will not flee the field. That's what it signifies in its military context. In its athletic context, it refers to the man who stays the course instead of falling behind or dropping out. So it has these two backgrounds. Now here in Hebrews 12.1, it's obviously the athletic metaphor which is foremost in the apostle's mind. Let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. But in the passage immediately preceding which we read this evening, the life and experience of the men of faith is likened to 
conflict in a battlefield. And that's what we have been reading about this evening. These men who were tortured, refusing to accept release that they might rise again to a better life, who suffered mocking and scourging, claims and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, killed with the sword and so on. Earlier on in verse 34, they quenched raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword, won strength out of weakness, became mighty in war. Now do you see, you therefore get the two contexts in this passage. In chapter 12 at the beginning, the race. In chapter 11 in this last paragraph, the battle. And as you know, these two metaphors of soldiering and running are Paul's two favorite metaphors for describing the Christian life. This is how he describes his own life. I have fought a good fight. I have finished the course, he says. And the course is the race track that he's speaking about. And so to Timothy, he says, go on fighting the good fight of faith. And he brings the two together. I do not regard myself as having arrived, but I press toward the mark for the prize. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. Now, the point about this is that if the Christian life were to be some kind of spiritual picnic, there would be no need for this kind of language from the military and from the athletic sphere. Go on persevering to the end. Don't drop out. Don't hold back. Don't lag behind. Don't flee the battlefield. Go on fighting to the end. If the Christian life were not a battle, a warfare to be waged, there would be no need for this kind of counsel in Scripture. If the Christian life were not a race that had to be run, which demanded every fiber of a man's being to be engaged in it, and the Greek games were games that were taken with the utmost seriousness, and there was hardship both in preparing for them and in running them. And what he is speaking about is the thousand different pressures just because there is a kingdom of darkness which is around us and set against us, there are a thousand different pressures upon the child of God and against the servant of God which make it necessary for us to heed what God is saying about Christian perseverance. I must have told you, I'm sure, before of the time I remember so well when in St. Andrew's Halls, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones used to come to, to Glasgow to preach. Uh, you almost tell your generation now if you can remember St. Andrew's Halls in Glasgow, you know. Well, I remember being in St. Andrew's Halls. And I remember somebody taking me around the back uh, to wait until he was finished. And Dr. Lloyd-Jones was there greeting great lines of people who were coming to talk to them. And as he went through this great line of people, I remember standing in the shadows of it, watching him as he spoke to them all. And as he greeted them, I discovered he was saying exactly the same thing to every single one of them. And I thought, you know, here he was, this great man. I expected that he would have something different that he could have thought up for all these different people were coming. But he shook hands with them, and as he said goodbye to them, he said, now keep on, he said, keep on. 
And to somebody else, whatever else you do, keep on, he said, keep on. And you know, as I thought about it on the way home with my friend, I thought that's the very thing that so many of God's people, myself included, were greatly needing to hear from God. Keep on, keep on. Because that's what God is saying to us here from every corner of the Old Testament. He starts at creation and goes right through to the prophets. What is God saying? He is saying to his people, keep on, he says. Because there's a battle to be fought. There's a race to be run. And what is needed is the quality of Christian perseverance. Now, my beloved, I would testify to you this evening that I know no joy in the whole world like the joy of being a child of God and knowing Jesus Christ. I know no joy in the world like being called to be a servant of God. And I sometimes walk about in the midst of the day saying to myself how utterly astonishing it is that you should be paid for doing this kind of thing. The, uh, the amazing privilege of it engrows with me and never ceases to astonish me. But I want to say to you at the same time, there grows in my soul the awareness of the sheer battle that there is. Because the powers of darkness are arrayed against us. And one of the things that young Christian people desperately need to grasp is that there is a war on in these days. And we need to have this quality of Christian perseverance. And that's why the apostle has so much to say to us about it. The great danger you see in Christian warfare as well as in Christian race running is that the evil one will employ every tactic he has to divert you from the race or to divert you from the war. It was old W.P. Nicholson, that great rough-hewn Irish evangelist, who once said, if Satan can't keep you from getting converted, he'll do everything in his power to get you diverted. And that's so true. And one of the heartaches of the ministry is to watch people who have been converted and then diverted. Now the encouragement to perseverance. That's the need for it. Now you notice how beautifully the scripture balances encouragement with challenge. It's one of the lessons we greatly need to learn. The scripture is not all challenge and incisive words that are going to cut us to the quick. It balances it with this beautiful balance of encouragement and challenge. And the great encouragement, do you notice? And he has spent the whole of chapter 11 with it. The great encouragement comes from the surrounding cloud of witnesses referred to at the beginning of chapter 1. It is obviously the picture of the amphitheater, which you can still see in the ancient world. Some of you may have been in these places where you would see the great amphitheater in the, the, um, some of the Greek ruins. You can see it. You can see it at Rome. And you can imagine some of the crowds of people who are gathered around there. And the races would be one run in 
these places with great tiered serried ranks of people watching and the crowds roaring and the athletes running. You can just imagine the situation. Well, this is what the apostle is painting for us. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and the witnesses are all the figures he has been calling upon in chapter 11. Because of this, he says, let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. Now, witnesses mean either spectators, that is, those who uh, are watching, and people have sometimes said the picture that's here is the picture of those who have gone before us to glory, as it were, hanging over the ramparts of heaven and watching us as we are running the race. That's a beautiful picture, but I don't actually think it's what the apostle is talking about. That may or may not be true. But uh, there is another sense, you see, in which the word witness is used. It's used to describe those who bear testimony to someone or something. And it's the latter use which I'm sure the apostle has in mind here. The real point of this first phrase of verse 1 is neither that these saints of the past are admiring or criticizing us, but that we are to be heartened and encouraged by what they are testifying to. Our eyes, in other words, are not to be upon them at all. Whether their eyes are upon us or not is another story, but our eyes are, of course, in verse 2, to be not on them, but on Jesus. But what is to encourage us in the race is the testimony that they have as witnesses to the utter and absolute faithfulness of God. Now, that's what chapter 11 is, is testifying to. In verse 19, for example, of chapter 11, Abraham, by faith, considered that God was able to raise men even from the dead. And on that basis, he proved God's utter and absolute faithfulness. Moses, in chapter 11, verse 27, forsook Egypt by faith, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured a seeing him who is invisible. Now the great testimony of these men of faith in chapter 11, you see, is this. It's not to themselves. It's not that we are to look at these men and say, oh, that we were men like Abraham or men like Moses or Elijah or some of these people. What they are pointing us to all the time is the utter faithfulness of God and the absolute trustworthiness of God in their experience. And because of that, he says, let us therefore run with perseverance the race that is set before us. Now, you see, this is the use of biblical history and the use of the past in Scripture. It is the encouragement of seeing what God has done in history. And that's the great importance of our becoming familiar with the Old Testament, especially with some of these great historical sections of the Old Testament where we are tracing the mighty works of God in the lives of the most unlikely people. Is that why he raises up somebody like Rahab? Rahab the harlot whose name goes amongst this great catalog of men of faith? Because God is a God who is able to prove himself to the least likely people. 
Now this is where you see the whole of biblical history has to be taken up and used by the believer as a bastion to his life in days when he's trembling like these believers on the brink of turning back. That's why it is the word of God which is again and again the medicine that our souls desperately need in hours like this. And that's why the devil will keep you from reading the Bible when you're in this kind of situation. You see, there is a right and a wrong use of history. The wrong use of history is to have this wistful look back to former days. You know, there's a tendency in many of our Christian circles to do this. And to say things ain't what they used to be. You know, The situation is so different. Oh, that the great old days might be back. But you know, some of the great old days were not so great. I find when I read the history of God's church in former days, they were having in so many cases the very problems that we are having in our generation. The real use of history, and especially of biblical history, is to say, blessed be God that we have the same God today as they had then, that a man like Elijah, for example, subject to like passions as we are, prayed and God heard him. And where is the Lord God of Elijah? That's what they cried. Where is the Lord God of Elijah? Well, he is precisely here. The Lord God of Elijah is our God. And this is the encouragement that we are to take from such passages of Scripture as these. It's for this reason, of course, that God so often comes to his people. Have you noticed when they are discouraged or doubting him and he comes to them and says, Now I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. I am the God who brought your fathers up out of the Red Sea and did this and this and this with them. Now he's not just giving them a history lesson. What God is saying to his people is, if I have done this with your fathers, I can do exactly the same for you. And that's why it's so important for us to be aware not only of biblical history, but of Christian history, of the history of the church of God throughout the generations. It's a very interesting thing to me that one of the things that we do not find many people exercised about in our generation is the need for revival in the church, in our land, and in our time. And I'm sure one of the reasons for that, amongst many others, is that we have stopped reading the history of revivals a very significant thing that in the period before almost every great revival you will discover a new awakening to the glorious record of God's dealings with his people in the past in the history of revival. And men and women are encouraged to cry to God that he will do it again. There is an encouragement to perseverance and it is the encouragement of God's dealings with his people in the past. So we are intended to take such chapters as chapter 11 of Hebrews and to read through it and pray through it and come to God and claim from him 
his promise that he is an unchanging, faithful God who is able to do the very same thing for us. You notice what these verses teach us about the preparation for perseverance, the need for it, the encouragement to it, the preparation for it. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run then with perseverance the race that is set before us. The New International Version has it, let us throw off everything that hinders and then let us run with perseverance. Now what this language is really dealing with, of course, is the practice in the ancient Olympic Games of the discipline that was needed before the race was run. Uh, it seems as if, actually, uh, I wasn't aware of this until this morning, but it seems as if the weight, um, every weight, uh, probably means exactly what we would mean by weight. Um, there are so many people who are trying to lose weight at the moment. Well, now, the athlete gives himself to this because he wants to be stripped of everything that is going to hinder him in any sense in running the race. And he gets down to the point where he is, he is rid of every excess flabbiness. Everything that would disable him in any sense for running the race. And the point is, you see, that he does this because he's serious about it. This is the big thing in life for him. This is really what life is all about. Like Rod Laver, I, I got a quote from Rod Laver from the radio. Um, my car happens to have a radio in it. Not a very good one, but I, I picked up something some time ago that Rod Laver said when somebody was introducing him uh, in a program. Do you know Rod Laver, by the way? There's age again. He won Wimbledon uh, at one time, you know. Remarkable tennis player. Listen to what he says. Somebody asked him the secret of his success. You've got to live a life, he says, that's focused. You've got to live a life that's focused on tennis. For myself, he says, I live, eat, and sleep tennis. Of course it's costly, but then you've got to decide what your life is all about. That was the phrase. You've got to decide what your life is all about. And because of that, he was ready for this kind of preparation, this kind of slimming down, you know. Now some of what he is speaking about here the, the laying aside of every weight is, is probably just harmless impedimenta, as we would say. But you see, the man who professes to be serious about running a race is not going to appear on the racetrack at the Olympic Games wearing an overcoat and carrying a couple of suitcases. Not because there's anything stupid about wearing overcoats and carrying suitcases. That's a perfectly normal thing that people will do. But it's what he's professing to be doing. If he's standing there at the beginning of the hundred meters, he presents a comic, tragic, stupid, ridiculous figure that brings the mockery of the world upon the man. Now, if he stood in the central station, he would be perfectly normal. You see? 
But it's what he's professing to be about. He's professing to be running a race to Olympic standards. And that's why he has got to express and give evidence of his seriousness. Now that's not the same thing as morbidity. Not in the slightest. Some of the most serious Christians I know are the most hilarious people you could possibly be in company with. But there's there's something to be serious about, beloved. And the question is, what am I really serious about? Now, I know people who are serious about all sorts of things. It's very interesting to see what people really take seriously. But when you're really serious about this business of the race, then you are going to get rid of the impedimenta. I don't see anything harmful about that. People say, what's the harm in this? As they cling on to their little toy, you know. I always get worried when I hear Christian people speaking like that. I don't see any harm in doing that or being this or that or the other. No, probably not. But there are other occasions when people say that when I get really concerned to know what are they serious about. What's life focusing on? Am I really serious about the race? Because you see, there is a clothing which is suitable for the race and there is a clothing which is not. And God knows we desperately need in the Christian world in these days people who are living focused lives focused lives, not unhealthy lives, not lives that are cramped or impoverished. That's a lie of the devil. It's an appalling thing. I discover that the time that people really get into mixed-up trouble is when they have not been ready to live a focused life. And they're trying to keep a foot in both worlds. And, beloved, it does not work. There is a preparation for running this race. It's what Paul calls mortification. It's what he calls in writing to Timothy, not getting entangled. Laying aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Can I say a word about the manner in which we are to persevere? Do you notice it? Looking to Jesus, verse 2. Let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, looking away to Jesus. Now you will notice again our eyes are not to be on the cloud of witnesses, but upon Jesus. And that in two senses. First, as our example. He is, if you like, the great prototype in running this race. In so many senses, he has run it the whole way before us, of course. There is not a place that you are ever going to put your footstep in running this race, however hard it may become. And interestingly, the Greek word for the race is the word that we know as agony, you know. It's very interesting. The race was an agony. And however agonizing it may be, there is not a place that you will ever put your foot, but Jesus has been there before you. He is the forerunner in that sense, and the example. 
Because, do you notice in verse 3, consider, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Now, whenever you grow weary or faint-hearted, says the apostle, consider Jesus and what he has endured for our sake. But not only as an example, but as our eternally sufficient Savior, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You notice the constant repetition of this word, endure. Now, Jesus is the pioneer and perfecter. The authorized version is better, I think, the author and finisher of our faith. Now, what that means is this, you see. That here we are in this Christian race. And why are we here? Why are we in this race? Well, the only reason that we are in the race at all is that the Lord Jesus has brought us into it. He is the author of our faith. And because he is the author of it and has brought us into it, he also is the finisher of it and will bring us to the end of it. As our eyes are upon him, and we are ready to take him at his word. There is just no question about the end of it, you see. Because he has put our feet into it and is the author of our faith, he is also the finisher of our faith. He who began a good work in you, says Paul, will go on to perfect it. Christian perseverance, you see, is in the last analysis God's perseverance with us. That's the glorious fact. This is the manner in which we are to persevere with our eyes upon him who is going to take us on to the very end. Now, earlier on in the epistle to the Hebrews, we saw how Jesus was described as the one who was an anchor for us within the veil. Do you remember that beautiful phrase? An anchor within the veil. Now, when you have an anchor in heaven, and Jesus is that anchor, and you are held fast at the other end of the rope, as it were, there is nothing that is going to shake Jesus in heaven. And therefore, there is nothing that is going to shake his purpose to draw you all the way to glory. And that's the secret of Christian perseverance. Listen to these great words. If we'd been able to sing that tune well, we would have sung this hymn, A Debtor to Mercy Alone. Do you know that great hymn? Augustus Montague Toplady. Not a name to go around the world with, but um, Augustus Montague Toplady has the last verse beginning like this. Yes, I to the end shall endure. Now, where does he get that confidence from? I to the end shall endure. Well, here's where it's from earlier in the hymn. The work which his goodness began, the arm of his strength will complete. His promise is yea and amen and never was forfeited yet. Things future nor things that are now nor all things below or above can make him his purpose forego, or sever my soul from his love.
Christian perseverance is really God's perseverance with us looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So there are two sides to what the Bible is to say to us about Christian perseverance. Let us persevere, and he is the perseverer par excellence. But in bringing us to glory, he urges us, go on, go on. Now, uh, just a word about the fifth thing, and uh, then we're done. The means God uses, the means God uses to teach us perseverance. What is it that Jesus is said to have endured in verses 2 and 3? First, the cross. He endured the cross. And then the hostility of sinners against himself in verse 3. Him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Now this was how he entered into his joy who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, the way to endure unto glory was to do so through the cross. Now the teaching of these verses is not just that endurance or perseverance is possible despite trials and troubles and tribulations. It is rather that these very tribulations are the stuff out of which perseverance is made. It's not just that we persevere despite all the things that are against us. It is that these very trials are the material God is using to create perseverance in his people. And sometimes you can see God doing this in the earlier stages of someone's life, putting them through the mill, as it were, because out of that mill, he is going to create the kind of perseverance that will stand for God in some area of the world. I will never forget when I was in Indonesia some years ago and speaking with some of the OMF missionaries there, I met a young missionary who in his teens, as we began to talk together, he told me of the most appalling trials that he had gone through in his life in America. Situations that really I could scarcely have credited were possible for one man to have it all piling into his life. But you know, when I realized the kind of things that he was bearing in that situation that God had sent him to, and doing so valiantly, if ever there was a man who was triumphing for the sake of God and the gospel in the most impossible situation, it was that man. And I said to him, do you ever think that maybe God was training you to prove that tribulation worketh patience and patience experience and experience hope and hope leads on to glory and that's the significance of that. Oh, he said, I don't just think that. I'm sure of it. God has a way of 
teaching his children. This quality of perseverance. So, says Paul, we glory in tribulation because, not because we love it or are masochists, but because tribulation worketh perseverance. Now think about your trials and pressures and adversities in that way. And let me say to you as we part from one another this evening, whatever situation you are in, keep on in God's name, keep on, because the Lord is thy keeper. Keep on by itself, you see, can sometimes be a counsel of despair. But the reason we are able to keep on is the Lord is thy keeper, who is at thy right hand. He neither slumbers nor sleeps, who keeps Israel. He will keep you. Therefore, keep on. Let us pray together. Lord our God, we bow before thee this evening and acknowledge our need of thy grace and of the ministry of thy Holy Spirit to open our eyes to the wonders of all that thou hast wrought for us in Jesus Christ. We bless thee for our utter security in him. And since thou hast set before us such infinite glories, we pray that we may press toward the mark for the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. Lord, grant that the dawning of eternal glory may spur us on to reach for heaven we commit one another to thee this evening. To this end, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all forevermore. Amen. You're listening to Hear the Word of God with the Reverend Eric Alexander, a minister in the Church of Scotland for over 50 years. To access more Bible teaching from Rev. Alexander, visit hearthewordofgod.org, where your generous contribution will help us sustain and grow this ministry. That's hearthewordofgod.org. You could choose instead to mail a check to this address, 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601, or call 1-800-488-1888. This program is a presentation of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm Mark Daniels. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time for Eric Alexander and Hear the Word of God.